gifts that you've ever gotten over the years? Call out, go ahead. Your husbands weren't good to you? Come on, what's going on? All right, we'll go to the guys. Any good gifts that you got over the years? What was that? That's interesting. Wife and kids, excellent. Anybody else? Nice. Jared? My family, great. What about the children? Think of any good gifts that you got? You can call out Star Wars figures or, you know? Guitars? Good. Nobody called out the thing that I'm going to run into, so that's, that's good. You're not getting ahead of me. Well, I'll just talk about even me when I got gifts. Starting at the age of 10, I got a calculator. You know, I was always into, that's kind of weird, isn't it? I really wanted a calculator, so I got one. And I thought that was the best gift in the world at the time. A few years later, I got my first 10-speed, which, of course, was the best gift in the world at the time. And then when I was a teen, when I could get an envelope and open it up and get money, that was the best gift in the world because I could buy whatever I wanted. Many years later, my then-girlfriend, who's now my wife, Heather, bought me the best gift in the world, a bunch of really cool parts for a Firebird I was hot-rodding. <laughs> Well, you know, all those best gifts in the world are now gone. The calculator, you know, I, you know, I, my dad used to do this as a kid too, but I used to take apart anything I got that was electronic to see what made it tick. So I took it apart so many times that it was just broken. It was useless. The money was spent a long time ago, and the parts for the car, well, Heather got pregnant, you know, we, and we had a son on the way, so I had to get something a little bit more practical. The bike that I love so much got stolen. It really did. I think that's what caused me to be a police officer later in life. I don't know. <laughs> but I never did find the bike. At the age of 27, however, truly, I received the best gift in the world. And that gift was in Jesus Christ and also eternal life. That gift has lasted longer than any other gift. And amazingly enough, it still has the same effect as when I first received it. You know how gifts over the years, you stuff them in the closet or you get rid of them or whatever, or you get a new car and after 50, 60,000 miles, it's not new anymore, is it? But the gift of eternal life always has the same effect. So tonight I'd like to go through the scripture chronologically in order of time, and let's look at a few people who also have received the best gift. The first one to receive the gift was Mary, and I'll start with Luke 1, verse 26. Luke 1. 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. You see, in those days, if you were greeted by an angel, it could, it could mean judgment for you. So you'll find the, a pattern here. When an angel comes out of their dimension, comes in contact with a human and their response to that. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, or Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end, a future fulfillment. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month to her, for her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This young Jewish woman was told that she was going to bear the Messiah. And that birth would be miraculous. Wow. See, this gift that Mary got was a mixed blessing because she's greeted by an angel. It's going to be a, a miraculous you know, conceiving of the Messiah. And who knows what the future held for her. But at the same time, a young Jewish girl in that society had no status. People would talk, and they did. And actually, Joseph, as a just man, wanted to put her away secretly, thinking also she got pregnant by somebody else. But the angel spoke to Joseph and said, no, no, no. It is a child. It's the Messiah. So you see what's going on here. Now, I just like to always add a little bit of apologetics. I can't help myself. The revisionist historians try to tell us that, you know what? 2,000 years later, we know better. With our science, we know that it's not a miracle. It really didn't happen like that. She was just some girl, and by natural means, she had a baby. Well, let me just throw this out at you. We have translations today that are maybe 1,000 years old, but we also have translations that go back well over 2,000 years. The Septuagint, the 3rd century BC, when all the world was dominated by the Grecian Empire, and the Jews at the time were now under their, um, they were like a vassal to the Grecians. And after some time, they got together 70 Jewish scholars, rabbis and such, and they made this book called the Septuagint, where they took the entire Old Testament from Hebrew and translated it into Greek so that the, the pagans, the polytheists, could understand the monotheistic God. It's very interesting. Isaiah 7.14, all the way back in the Old Testament, the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, 700 years prior to the birth of Christ, said this. Therefore, speaking, prophesying into the future, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, or with us is God, a hint to the deity of Christ. Now, the word for virgin in the Hebrew is Alma, and it was translated in the Septuagint to Parthenos, which is a contraction which literally means an unmarried virgin. So there you have the proof. So the ancient Jews knew in the future, looking towards the future, that it would be a miracle, and it would be an incredible miracle. The second ones to receive the gift were the shepherds and the angels. Okay, going to Luke 2, 7, it says, and some time has passed, it says, and she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger or a feed trough, because there was no room for them at the inn. Now they were in the same country, shepherds, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. You see the pattern there? Again, they're greeted by the angels, and they're like, Whoa, what, what do we do? What's going on here? And the angel said, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. 
For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, and it was told to them. If you remember, in our Luke study some time back, we talked about the culture. It's really cool when you learn about the Bible and understand the geography and the culture and the belief systems that they had. It really opens up the Bible to us. And we talked about really the prejudice that the, uh, excuse me, the shepherds received as outcasts. Probably a derogatory term today uh, would say that they were hillbillies, they were dirty, they were you know, tending the animals, they were outcasts from uh, you know, educated society. And you see this repetitive theme we're going to see tonight that, that the ones that God revealed himself to, the gift that was given to, was usually given to the ones that were humbled first. The proud, the Bible said, would be humbled or abased, and, and the humble will be exalted, right? That's a common theme in the scripture. The third ones were Simeon and Anna. You can see that in Luke chapter 2. I'm not going to read that, but these were two devout elderly Jews that were blessed to behold the Messiah before they died. Simeon had prayed, and God assured him that he would see the consolation of Israel before he died. Reminds me of two scriptures. Matthew 5, 6, that said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And that's still true today. And Matthew 5, 8, says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And these two elderly Jews did see, did see God. The fourth ones to receive the gift were the wise men. I'm going to turn to chapter, Matthew chapter 2. Okay, some time has passed. Jesus is a little bit older. He's more of a toddler at this point. Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men, or Magoi, came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now this is interesting because the wise men come from a far land. They believe possibly Babylon, possibly old Persia. If you look on the map, Iran, Iraq, that kind of area in there. They come from the east, they go west, because they see this star. What better place to go than Jerusalem, the city of spiritual life? However, Herod the king, Herod the Great, was ruling at the time. And in history, it was said it was safer to be Herod's pet than it was to be his relatives. Because Herod was, was mad with power, and he actually slaughtered some in his own family because he, sus he was suspicious of them trying to take his power away. So he had, of course, his henchmen in his cabinet. And when the wise men came looking for the Messiah, first of all, he wasn't, Herod wasn't looking for them. 
And he felt threatened by the fact that there was a Messiah that was going to be born to threaten his presence. And you could see, if you Google some of this stuff, even secular history backs up pretty much all of what the scripture talks about in that historical time period. And when Herod had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, they knew enough in the Old Testament, Micah 5.2, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet Micah, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Of course, it was a ruse. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Very unusual for dignitaries from the east to do this. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Notwithstanding their status and their skills, the Magi or the Magoi in the Greek brought gifts to the Messiah and worshipped him. Again, would have been out of character. But God, because of their humility, blessed them in allowing them to be a part of the greatest story ever told. The fifth ones, the disciples, to receive this gift. Now, when you read the gospel accounts, you see that Jesus didn't come for the smartest, most clever, most uh, you know, dapper, most um, popular, uh, politically you know, expedient people. He came for these regular guys, fishermen and a tax collector and you know, a, pretty much a plethora of diversity. Uh, one guy was apparently a zealot. Similar to the shepherds, these Galileans were also the subject of mockery and persecution. As a matter of fact, in Luke 13, when we did our study, we saw that Pontius Pilate had killed some of, not the disciples, but some of the Galileans and mixed their blood with his sacrifice and offered it to his pagan gods. Okay, so uh, a Galilean's life, they had a particular accent that gave them away, and they were, you know, not, the, not part of the in crowd politically. So what do we have here? We have a young Jewish girl. We have shepherds. We have elderly Jewish people. We have humbled wise men and the Galileans. And God gave them the greatest gift. The sixth ones. The Jewish people in general. Christ said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. You see this all over the Old Testament. God always speaks about how he tended to his people as if he was the shepherd and they were sheep. And we see Jesus take that, uh, acquiesce to Jesus in the, in the New Testament. All the devout Jews could calculate. Now this is very interesting. Did you ever wonder why when Jesus called his disciples, they dropped their fishing nets and they followed him. They, they gave the business over to their father and they took off. Matthew, the tax collector, enemy of the, his own people, Jewish man, he called Matthew. He left the tax booth and he followed Jesus. Again, if you don't know the, the, the background, that sounds bizarre. Again, out of character. What happened here? Well, if we go back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, the Old Testament prophet Daniel 530 years before Jesus was born, he basically gives the Jewish people hope 
in calculating a time frame that their Messiah would appear. Let me just read this for you. It's one verse. Daniel was, you know, pretty upbeat guy, but I'm sure he was upset at the time the, Babylon, the Babylonians had come, invaded uh, Israel. This is all secular history, right? And they destroyed the temple. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem and left it in ruins. So the Jewish people couldn't worship their God. The temple was gone. And to make it worse, they exiled a lot of the Jewish people to Babylon. They expatriated them, okay? Some of them even became pagans because they were so immersed in that culture. And they took the Babylonians and sent them to uh, these, these areas in, in Israel to, you know, to dilute the Jewish people. So Daniel now, good man of God, a prophet of God, he's in, he's in uh, exile, and he gets a message from an angel. And the angel tells him pretty much, Daniel, there's a good thing going on here. The temple's going to be rebuilt. The city is going to be rebuilt, which we know history bears that out. And not only that, I'm going to give you a time frame to calculate the day that your Messiah will, will, will show up in Israel to bless his people. Okay, so what happened was, it says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So this, again, this is history before it even happens because it's prophetic. What happens in March of 445 B.C., Artaxerxes, the Persian king, has favor upon the Jews, sends them back to Jerusalem, a delegation. They start to rebuild Jerusalem. The temple is eventually rebuilt. And then from that point, the clock is ticking, 483 years. Each week is a seven-year period in, in the Jewish calendar. So what they would do is they would count from the decree of Artaxerxes to send the Jews back to Jerusalem until the, the coming of the Messiah was 483 uh, years or 173,880 days. So what, what makes sense is that when Jesus walked the earth, the disciples knew there's only a few days left, and Jesus came and called them, and they started following him. It's pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? A little science in there, a little apologetics, but you know what? We don't have blind faith. The Bible tells us that we can be intelligent of why we believe what we believe. These are time-sensitive prophecies that nobody could come again, according to the Jewish Old Testament, and claim to be the Messiah because they were time-sensitive prophecies. The last ones to receive the greatest gift, you and me, the church, the world, post-resurrection. You see, this is the gift in 1 John 5, 11 through 13. He says, and this is the testimony that God has given us really the gift of eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So we also see through that, as we're going through the book of Revelations, Jesus even tells us that he's the greatest gift. And he can do that because he's deity, right? In Revelation 2, the church of Thyatira was a pretty crummy church. But Jesus promised them if they overcame, he would give them a morning, the morning star, which was an allusion to himself. And Jesus basically says to his, his people, if you overcome, I'm going to give you me. What greater gift could we ask for? Revelation 3, to the Laodicean church, was a very wicked church. But Jesus still begged some of those people to persevere and to repent and to turn towards him and do the right thing and overcome. And Jesus said, to those who overcome, I will give to them to sit on my throne. You know, Jesus 
that throne is his. But he gives to those who overcome the ability to sit with him, like daddy, to sit on the throne with him. It's pretty neat. And as a result, we have the gift of eternal life, the gift of faith, and the Bible says there's many more gifts in here. I'm just going to wrap up with a few things for um, just to bolster your faith, a few recent things that I've looked at. In 19, because every, every Christmas and every Easter, somehow, coincidentally, the secular world throws, oh, that didn't really happen, or that wasn't a miracle, or Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. In 1950, prior to 1950, a lot of skeptics said, oh, that Pontius Pilate guy is just a character. We don't, we don't think he really existed. In 1950, there was an archaeologic discovery, and you can Google this, that found Pilate's inscription at the Caesarean Amphitheater, which was the Roman capital of Judea, Caesarea, and it, it, just, it just confirms that and many other documents that Pontius Pilate existed. The other thing was the whole thing about the star over Bethlehem that the secularists uh, scoff at. It is kind of interesting because the wise men saw the star. It was a really bright star. And then as they get closer, the, car, the star kind of hovers over Jesus' home and stops. Man, that makes no sense to, to the average person or to the scientific mind. But we're going to check this out. I just want to blow your mind with this, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Don't Listen, afterwards you can talk to me, and, and I'll, I'll write it down for you if you need to. But let me just kind of get through this. In the 1600s, Johannes Kepler, I believe he was a German scientist, gave us the three laws of planetary motion. Several decades later, Isaac Newton came along, uh, also a believer, and he refined Kepler's laws, right? In Numbers 24, all the way back in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in the foundational books of the Jewish people, Numbers 24, the Old Testament prophesied about a star that would come out of Jacob. And in Matthew 2, thousands of years later, not only did it draw the Magi, but it stood over Christ's home. The word for star, and I'm building a case here, the word for star in the Greek language is astera, where we get the word asteroid from. Star has been used for planets and also stars, that, that particular word that's used, astera. When you plug in the parameters, okay, to a program, they have this new program um, called Starry Night, and a lot of astronomers use it. And what happens is you it does all the math for you, Kepler's laws, Newton's laws, it's already done. So it doesn't take you a long time to write it down. If you plug in the parameters to this program, right, and you can put your observation point at anywhere on the globe, okay? So let's plug in some numbers. You can do this. Babylon, modern-day Iraq, the observer's over there, so he's from the east. He's looking westward, correct? And you can put it in the area because, remember, there's a trajectory of the, of the heavenly bodies. There's a path that they follow. You do the mathematics, and you can go backwards very easily. 2 to 3 B.C., because of the calendar glitch, uh, Jesus, was, he, Jesus was probably born more in 4 B.C. than 0 B.C. Again, it has to do with the calendar. But if you go back to 2 to 3 B.C., an observer from Babylon, and you put it into this program, what do you get? Actually, the, the, the program will show you on your computer screen what the night sky looked at. Now, what it shows you is some bizarre behavior of a few bodies. The, star, the king star Regulus was very bright. The king planet Jupiter, okay, and Venus. There was luminosity based on reflectivity of these planets, and uh, let me just put it all together here. I'm going to make it make sense. So if you're an observer at 2 to 3 BC, and you're at Babylon, and you're looking westward in the night sky, what do you see? You see a huge, bright star in the night sky. I actually saw the program, and I could see it. I'm like, whoa. It is, it, there's no missing it. 
You see all the other stars, but you see this real bright body, and you'll just be drawn to it. No doubt these magi were schooled in the school of David, because remember David, I'm sorry, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, several hundred years ago, Daniel was a captive in Babylon, and he taught the, the soothsayers and the, and the magicians who the true God was. And we can find this in the book of Daniel, right? So these guys now, go back to four, three, 2 or 3 BC, see this incredible brightness in the sky. So they're drawn to it. They know the prophecies. They know the teachings of the Bible. And they're drawn to where this, this star is leading them. Now, you, pl you plug in the program 2 BC, it gets even better. About the time when they're in Jerusalem or Bethlehem, retrograde motion. Retrograde motion is if you're standing on a moving platform and you're looking at something else that's moving, it can appear to stop and go backwards or stop dead based on your frame of reference, retrograde motion. Due to retrograde motion, the Magi would have seen this bright body stop in Bethlehem right over Christ's home. Now it gets even better. According to this program, it's all mathematics. This happened December 25th. Yeah. <laughs> Jack liked it. <laughs> so Jack, were you the only one following me here? <laughs> so when Jesus, now look, a lot of the, Christian, the Christmas holiday has been paganized. We know that. When Constantine, the emperor, had the Roman Empire convert to Christianity, there was a lot of paganism mixed in, and you got to pull the good from the bad. Uh, but the bottom line is we don't believe that Jesus was born on December 25th, but it is quite possible that the reason December 25th is celebrated is because of 2 BC when the Magi were just at uh, Bethlehem and the star stopped over his home. That was really when these, these, these dignitaries from other countries took this information and went to the rest of the world and said, hey, this is what happened this day. So it's pretty amazing stuff if you look at it. So the Bible is clear. The age that we live in today is the age, even Daniel says, the, the age of increased knowledge and increased travel. 50, 60, no, no, maybe 70 or more years ago. From that point back, the whole world, the fastest the world could travel was by ship or by horseback. Now look at it. Before that time, you know, you could write letters to each other and you could do mathematics on a piece of paper. Now a computer does it for you. So Daniel's actually, the revelation of Daniel is true. The more time goes on and the more we increase in knowledge and travel, the more God's uh, truth will be revealed in scripture. And science, science backs us up. Modern archaeology, these guys who go out and they dig in the ground in the Middle East, they're Jews or Arabs. They're not necessarily Christians. And I think some of them grudgingly, when they find something that's Christian or bolters, bolsters it, they have to give it to the world. All right, we, there's recently one thing about the, um, uh, the Davidic dynasty, King David, that uh, there's some new information when the world was saying, well, you know, David, it's, it's a story in the Bible. Now they actually found remnants of David's dynasty. It's pretty amazing. So let's just put this whole gift thing back into perspective. Boy, the kids are really good tonight. You're really quiet. I'm wrapping it up, guys. So just hang on a few more minutes. You can have those, you can have those cookies and run around and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but the best gift, what is the best gift? What do you buy for your spouse? What do you buy for your kids? Toys? Think about saving up for private schools. Think about college funds, all that kind of stuff. And I think sometimes, even Christians, we get so caught up in thinking about our kids' futures and how to give them stuff and how to make them not struggle like we struggled or our parents struggled that we miss the point. If we give them the latter, okay, or an uh, expense of the former, we're actually hurting our kids. So I just want to read this one scripture one more time and close it up with that. 
It says, and this is the testimony that God has given us the gift of eternal life. And that gift, and that gift is in his son. We've been given that gift. And we, should, we would do well to pass that on to our kids and those that we love. He who has the son has eternal life. He who does not have the son of God does not have eternal life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's an assurance. There's no guesswork. You believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins. He promised you eternal life. No guesswork in that. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Let's continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your prophecy. We